Having a Gas is the podcast that talks to the great and the good of the creative industries, and in particular finds out what makes great music for film, for TV, for commercials, for dancing to, for cooking to, for f***ing to, and more. Today, I'm having a gas with Ruben Cohen, a mastering engineer at Lurson Mastering in Los Angeles. Ruben has worked on dozens of hit records, which is why I wanted to grill him about the technicalities of mastering, which in my opinion is one of the least understood disciplines in audio. There's, there's too many things you've worked on to just list them all because we'd be here all day, but the big hit is, well, there are big hits like Happy by Pharrell. Um, and that's how you came to my attention. In fact, I watched your uh, little Mix with the Masters segment on uh, YouTube, which is very cool. Sure. Yeah. No, that one, I mean, we get a lot of attention for that single just because it, it was just this incredible hit. It, it was number one that summer and stayed number one for so many weeks in 2013, I believe. And, was, uh, uh, and everybody yeah. loves it because it went so viral. So, and it's a, it's a good, it's a good song to use an example as an example for mastering because it's, um, you know, it's a pop song that did so well in that, in those markets, but it's not super, super, uh, slammed with level. It's very much open in terms of its arrangement and its production and all the way from mixing into mastering. So, uh, sometimes I like to use that song as a good example of what can be brought with not over, uh, pushing something just because people feel like they have to a lot of the time. Yeah. So when we talk about over pushing, we're not not necessarily thinking about the obvious examples from the early part of the century, like, you know, Californication and, and records like that. But, you know, when I listen to, you know, uh, a playlist like This Is Max Martin on Spotify and everything is straight to the wall and it's just all the way through. And why why is that? How did we end up in a point where records have like no dynamic range? It's a really good question. And, and I'm not one to speak up against over, over or just introducing a lot of dynamic processing because we certainly do it. And we, when we receive sources that are almost presented that way, even before we touch it, um, and we do it in a, in a musical and uh, tasteful way, I like to think, um, there's, there's, there's ways to go about this in a really, really great musical way that works out, that feels really great. And in, in other words, I, I personally, as an audio professional, wouldn't have it any other way. And then there's the other end of the spectrum where you're trying to force something into being in a place that it just doesn't naturally, wasn't ever produced to be. And that's where we, we have these um, diminishing returns and shortcomings. Right. But how did we end up here to answer your question? Uh, loudness on the Im immediate flip from before, after, or comparing one thing to another, to the untrained ear will always sound better. It's going to sound bigger, more exciting. It's going to have this, uh, your, your, your initial reaction is, okay, well, I'm going to gravitate towards this. So um, early on, a lot of mastering houses would find that they could get a little bit more business if they could out loud each other. And this, this was, you know, this had uh, just kind of grew and grew and grew until we, we ended up where we are. The other thing is, is that as, as, pe as the listening environments changed from putting on uh, some vinyl and, and sitting in your living room and watching it spin and having a, a very um, captive audience that is in, in just ingesting this content um, has changed quite significantly. Now it's on the go. Now we're listening while we're in the car. We're kind of distracted with traffic. There's street noise coming all around us. So compression is a really useful tool to try to push the level up, the average level up, to block out all the, the noise all around you. So there's many reasons to get loud, <laughs> many yeah. incentives rather to get loud. And um, we've pushed those boundaries, of course, just like anything else in any other field, we've, we've, we've worked up against those and we've uh, we found that there's, um, there's, there's uses and for, for that type of thing. And there's also shortcomings. So through all of that, we kind of get better at it and we learn what to do, but certainly 
um, dynamic range, tight dynamic range, dense, dense arrangements is a musical choice. You know, there are genres like EDM, metal, hip hop, R&B, pop. These are the kind of the genres that a lot of times it's almost expected to have less of a dynamic range musically because you're going for that impact. You're going for that tightness. It's part of, part of the production, part of the sound. Right. So there's going to be uh, a lot to go out over the next hour because, you know, in terms of projects where there's a less expectation of dynamic range, you've done a lot of work on soundtrack. And mm-hmm. I'm really interested to talk about uh, what mastering means in that domain as opposed to in pop music. But um, I, I first always like to have a little bit of a, a runway as to you know, how you got here, not just how we got here in the industry, but how Ruben Cohen became, you know, someone with a, a CV, a resume that you have, because respectfully, you appear quite young to have all the experience that you have. <laughs> yeah. So how, how did you do it? I started very young. I started as a teenager, um, right out of, uh, I, I went to school, music school, went to Musicians Institute. And um, before I even graduated, I had a, an internship at the Mastering Lab, and that basically just took over. Um, the mastering lab in Hollywood, it's no longer there, but at the time it was on Hollywood Boulevard and, uh, I was an intern. I fell in love with mastering just by showing up and being there. I didn't intend to be a mastering engineer early on. I kind of thought that maybe I'd be a producer or probably a rock star because I was still a teenager. moved out to LA from, from Santa Barbara. It's where I grew up. Um, and I just found that I just fell in love with it. I I really did. I just didn't want to be anywhere else. I just was completely captivated by what was going on in the studio. I loved the interactions. And Gavin uh, Lurson, who was working there, uh, kind of saw that I had that spark in my eye, just wanting to just just absorb it all. And I think that he probably liked me hanging around in the studio because it kind of, you know, hopefully <laughs> made things go a little quicker than the opposite. And, and that was part of the training, learning how to make sure that everything went on course, all the clients uh, were, were serviced the way they need to be serviced. Um, and then evolving with the evolving industry. So I got very excited early on and, and, uh, and then not too long after that internship, um, maybe within about a little over a year or so, there was speak of maybe starting another facility. Gavin wanted to start Lurson Mastering. And he asked me if I would be one of the people that came along with him. And, and I was very excited to do so. And I was probably about to turn 20 at that time. Right. So, uh, so yeah, that's how it all started. I'm, I'll be 35, uh, in a couple months now. So that's really it. I started very young, um, and, uh, just fell in love with it along the way. And there's a really, there's a key lesson in what you just said there, which is that you didn't stay wedded to your initial plan of being a rock star. And a lot of people would, uh, would have had maybe that experience of saying, well, mastering, I thought I was going to be on the vocals or lead guitar, because if you will, there's like a, a diminishing returns in in sex appeal as you go down the post-production <laughs> chain. You know, you've got yeah. rock star, very cool, producer, pretty cool, mix engineer, okay, you know, it's time to get away from it. And then who, mastering engineers, what's going on? Like, no one is going to uh, make a statue of a mastering engineer yet. So, <laughs> um, so yeah, there's real value in that. It's like, don't stay wedded to your initial plan. Follow where, like, life appears to be taking you. Yeah, sometimes life pulls you in different directions and it's kind of like you just you just follow where it seems right, you know, and it did, it, it, of course, there's always those situations, there's times, especially when you're young, where you're second guessing your decisions and thinking, well, do I want to turn left or right? And what's the right way? And, and, you know, time kind of figures that all out for you also, you know? Yeah, um, definitely. But for me, uh, like any other job, I'm sure there's peaks and valleys and, and, and big successes and big failures or, you know, things that don't work out the way you're hoping them to work out. I mean, 
my life's been riddled with that as anybody else, you know, but nobody, nobody sees those parts. They only see what, what actually makes it out to the, you know, the finished gates. Yeah. 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 100%. And there's a big, there's a big push at the moment in the broader culture to, um, be more aware of the troughs as well as the peaks. Cause you know, we now have Instagram where you can curate your own life to look perfect. And, uh, yeah, we're becoming more conscious about that. So, yeah. Um, for our, for the layman in our audience, because I'm sure a lot of people will, I mean, hopefully YouTube and things like that pushes this up the, uh, the algorithm, but, uh, a lot of our audience starting out are in the UK advertising industry and even not only there, but even within music itself, I've always found that mastering is perhaps the least understood of mm. all the disciplines. And in fact, I get people who have made records who still confuse the terms mixing and mastering, which, uh, which is unusual. So for the layman, how would you describe mastering? What is the essence of what you're doing? Yes. Um, the essence in, in what I, I this, this, this statement that I'm about to give has changed over time, but what I feel, and this is my own opinion, is that it is whatever you need to do to feel most connected to the music. Once the project is mixed, it's your job to increase that connection, whatever that ends up mean, meaning, in the most effortless way possible. So you as a, as a listener feel most connected to that material and then know when to walk away and not do anything at all. And sometimes that means doing actually nothing at all. It's, it's pretty rare because there's always something that we can do in terms of textural feel, especially because we work analog and, and so much uh, work is presented digital. Majority, I'd say about 98% now is comes to us digitally. Yeah. Uh, so we do offer that even if we do nothing at all, just running through our, our flat chain gives you something. Um, that people often, uh, and it's not flat, it's flat with, with our flat. Right. Um, but there is something there that, that people end up always loving, even if, uh, it's very, very little in terms of, uh, adjusting the frequency balance, but what it really is, is whatever you need to do to increase that connection in its, in its entirety. If, if, if there's any more you can do to make that connection more connected, you do it. If not, if you take a step in the other direction, don't do it. And those are, uh, the rules to go on. So what does that really mean? That means optimizing the material um and it, it's sizing up what's presented to you in the mix form and i'll even i'll even digress a little bit and go back when you're assembling when you're producing a record for those that might not really understand so much about music production is you're blending the elements within the arrangement in the mix you know you're recording everything you're choosing your elements maybe guitar bass you know vocals and drums if it's a traditional rock band if it's a virtual you know uh maybe it's a more virtualized arrangement you know synthesized uh, sample based, you're picking your sounds and you're creating a blend. Uh, you're mixing that blend in the mixing process. And if you're mixing to stereo, you're, you're, you're mixing it to two, two channels, left and right. And then that is, that is printed that way and then presented to a mastering engineer. This is traditionally <laughs> things don't always go this way anymore because everybody, you know, does things differently. But traditionally, you you end up in that place, and that's your mix, and then you present that to a mastering engineer who's an objective person that hasn't heard this uh, umpty nine times, uh, completely objective, uh, and is able to um, introduce their uh, absolute first reaction in terms of what they can do to take it further, and and process those two channels. Let's say we're working in stereo uh, to optimize them further. Uh, maybe you're working on a single, and you're only focused on that one song, or you're working on a number of songs as maybe a compilation from various artists, various producers, or one artist as an album. And now we have to find a certain continuity so it all can live on one canvas. That's a big part of the mastering process. So optimizing it either for itself or to live 
in, in, in conjunction with other material, and then formatting it for release, which is the final step of the mastering process outside of the musical step, is, is, is formatting it, formatting all the various masters. Oftentimes we're making masters specifically for Apple, used to be called master for itunes now it's apple digital master uh then we're making a standard digital master uh typically 4416 although that's going to change probably sooner than we know for all the various platforms spotify google amazon etc we're still making ddpis for cd release for those that still want to make cds although that's we're moving out of that more and more every day and then of course high resolution masters to be cut to vinyl uh and then sometimes high resolution masters just to go out in general which is Apple's new uh, initiative, which will uh, is going to be very exciting, um, and then also you know the services that do playback HD, you know 96K all the way up to 192, 88.2. These are the higher res formats that are that are popular. So um, lots to talk about. Let's take some time to indulge the people who might be listening who are really into the tech. Let's say the geeks, and I think you were just talking there about formatting. And mm-hmm. I think that is like, of all the things, you know, even within mastering, the least understood. I okay. have no idea the difference between 44.1 and 48. And there was a debate that me and my friends used to have, a vicious debate. Uh, 96K doesn't sound different to 44.1. Uh, CD sounds better than vinyl, all of this stuff. So um, what, what is driving those like those decisions? And, you know, is there a distinction? Is there a, can you hear a qualitative sure. difference? Absolutely. Well, to all those statements, I 100% agree and 100% disagree at the same okay. time. Yeah. And and it's because these things get confusing. It's, uh, does CD sound better than vinyl? Well, yes and no, actually. It depends. And then and there's many factors even beyond that. How is the vinyl cut and from what source? Is the vinyl just the CD on vinyl, which there's a lot of vinyl that exists out there that simply is the CD format just then put to a it's almost like a yeah that's not better necessarily it's just a storage medium for the cd the cd file but um i suppose uh where should we start there's so much to dive into i guess we can start with sample rate what is sample rate yeah Um, let's do that let's do that so so sample rate is digitized audio signal you can't hear it until it gets converted back to analog so you have to go through a digital analog converter just to hear it otherwise it's just data so it's data that is audio analog signal converted to digital that is broken up into little slivers. So in, in film, we have 24 frames per second. We're for, pretty familiar with that. That flashes in, your, in front of your eyes so quickly that your brain understands it as not flashing light. It understands it as something close to what we experience in reality and yeah. me looking in front of you. Actually, I'm not looking in front of you. It's, a, it's an illusion, but my brain thinks that I am. So with audio, uh, it's the same thing. We're slivering these little samples up and we can do it in, and we can, we can do it in, uh, divide that up in, in the various fashions. 44.1 is 44,100 samples per second of flashing samples that hits your ear that convinces you that you're hearing something true. Uh, and we can go higher and higher than that. We can go to 48,000. We can double 44.1, go to 88.2. We can double 48 and go to 96. We can go up to all the way up to 192, and you can even go beyond that. But uh, those are the the common ones: 44.1, 48, 88.2, 96, and 192. Uh, that has to do with sample rate. Then you have bit depth, which is something different. Uh, you have for every sample, you have a a parameter in terms of how many bits um, are responsible for each sample: 16 bits or 24 bits. And I believe. 
it's every bit is responsible for eight DB of, of dynamic range. So if you have more than 16 bit, if you have 24 bit, you're it's, it's that much more dynamic range that's allocated per sample. So really, really low level stuff. It's very important in, you know, orchestral arrangements where you have big, big peaks and then tiny little quiet passages that are, are almost, you know, you can't even hear them even when you're monitoring full level uh, before you would hit that floor, which would then get lopped off at 16-bit. Uh, and that's where we have to introduce dither and stuff so you don't have to get into truncating and all of that. So I don't, like, like I said, these are pretty, you can go pretty far down the rabbit hole explaining all the technical ends of things. But in a nutshell, that's what sample rate and bit depth is. That yeah, and that's when you know you're if you're the typical bedroom producer running stuff off and you're going, what should it be, forty eight twenty four or forty four point one sixteen? Would you say at a certain level, there's just no there's no value in distinguishing between those things? Well, here's where I would. Uh, there's many things to consider. You have to consider why you're going above forty four one, and then you're also having to consider how you're going to release this to the world and do you have to start introducing sample rate conversion because sample rate conversion outweighs in my opinion going up you know if you if in other words if you're going to 96k but you have to end up at 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 uh 16 bit 44 you have to weigh out is it worth it uh to have to go through a sample rate conversion if if you're working digitally right because just going through a sample rate conversion can can introduce depending on what converter you use even too, can introduce a whole lot of loss. So is it worth it? Now, in my opinion, generally it is, especially because we we uh, master analog. So if somebody mixes and records, uh, records and mixes rather a 96K song and I play it back, I'm playing it back and converting that signal from digital to analog at 96K high res. And then on the back end, I can record in at whatever sample rate without any sample rate conversion I choose direct feed, which is another reason to, I mean, another benefit to going to analog is that you can bypass sample rate conversion and get a clean shot right in. And then I can re, I can uh, reset my capture machine to 96 and do a separate print just for 96. So no sample rate conversion at all. And I'm not a fan of sample rate conversion really. Um, so there's, there's that, but you know, sample rates, uh, they're, they're important, but they're not the most important thing. There's the more, the more important thing is technique. You know, how good is the integrity of your recording? How good are you at recording, you know, or who, who have you involved in your project that, that can bring your recording to where it needs to be? Those decisions great, greatly outweigh the difference between somebody listening to 48 versus 44. So, uh, the, the, the conclusion to derive from that is if we're squabbling as me and one of my friends used to, I regret to say, if we're squabbling over 44 versus 96, really we're putting the cart before the horse and we're not thinking about music, which is the important thing. I would say so, yeah. I'd say that there's certainly, I mean, in my opinion, and I mean, I, I get to cheat because I got really nice speakers that reveal <laughs> that a lot easier than, let's say, you know, an Apple earbud, you know? Can yes. you really hear, can my grandmother hear the difference between 96K and 44? She probably wouldn't be able to hear it on here. But... Yeah. And let alone the Apple earbuds, I would, but I, this is, this is my world, you know? Yeah. Um, but it's, but it's a, it's a subtle thing, you know, and it's almost a feel thing more than anything, because what it is, is it's closer to analog. It's closer to full resolution signal. Um, and what I mean by that is that at some point, well beyond what we can consciously hear, there is a cutoff point with digital in terms of the ultra harmonic frequency spectrum. You know, yeah. there is a, there, it does lop off and it lops off at a higher point at 96 than it does at 44, but it lops off nevertheless. If you're listening to true analog 
a true analog recording. Maybe it's 1970s vinyl that was recorded analog and cut analog, and there hasn't been any digital in, uh, intervention. Uh, that and you play it on a turntable, and you're and you're playing direct analog through analog speakers. That is an experience where there is no there is no lop off. There's it's no loss. Signal. It's similar to being in a in my experience, it's as, it's as pure as listening to a cellist in a, in a hall playing in front of you. It's yeah. the closest we have to that in recorded medium. Whenever you go to digital, you're, you've, lost, you've lost that because no matter what you do, you're lopping off the ultra harmonic frequency spectrum and, and you're, you're, um, you're at the mercy of the integrity, even under the best of circumstances of that converter and how you're playing it back. So uh, it creates a little bit, a subtle stress on the brain when you do that. Very, very subtle because the brain needs to compensate for that loss and it does it unconsciously. Mm -hmm. So these are the things to think about, you know, if you're going for a certain arrangement that, that the intent of that is to be just completely pure and, and you're a purist in, in your pursuit of that, then, then you want to start thinking about these things. If you're going to, if you're making an EDM song, it's probably going to be the last thing on your mind, you know, because you're already in the digital world. All your elements are already digital. So you're completely thinking about something different. So with this argument of digital versus analog, there's so much more than just this black and white type of comparison. It's uh, it's really much what are you trying to achieve? What's the music that you're that you're working on? All of these things need to be thought of. That's the two two questions that come straight to front of mind from, from that. Is, so one is I had the benefit of... Um, grabbing uh, a great number of my dad's vinyls from the 70s from his collection because he was in the, uh, you know, I'm washing out all of my irrelevant old media. I'm going straight to digital. So I was like, I'll have all the vinyl, thanks. I've got, you know, an original copy of what's going on, Marvin Gaye. And we put yeah. that thing on and we turn it up and we're all sat in my house going, why is that so good? I have no idea. And it's all to do with this phenomenon you described of analog to analog to analog to analog. There's been no interruption between Marvin singing and it coming out of my speakers. Yes. And then under the best of circumstances, now there are some beautiful recorded analog, you know, digital. Now, now you can only listen to it digital recordings. And, you know, a lot of times I, I reference this one album that we did, uh, the Punch Brothers, the Phosphorescent and Blues, the arrangements are like, where do you go from here? It's just, you don't go anywhere beyond this for, for what they are doing, you know? Um, the musicianship, the mixing, everything, the way it was recorded, it sounds so pure and analog. And yet you have to listen to it as an MP3 on the digital platforms right now. Nevertheless, I'm still, as a music person that enjoys music and with ears that, that are spoiled, um, I still enjoy it and I can still feel connected to it. So, you know, success. <laughs> yeah, of course. So yeah. um, I also wanted to uh, get one more a bit of really intense digital um, digital geekery out of this when you were talking about the ultraharmonic frequency spectrum. And just as a shot in the dark, I recently watched, an, I think it was another mix with the Masters. It was the dude who mastered um, Kendrick Humble. And he put a relatively significant boost on 22,000 hertz. Yes. And I was thinking, I can't even hear 17,000 at my age and I'm 28. How, what's that even going to do? And is that ultra harmonic frequency? Is that what we're thinking about? Or Yes and no. And I know what you're referring to. And that's a, com that's a common technique, actually, um, from you know, various mastering studios. Uh, 
you know, Doug would do something like that too. Gavin's mentor. And, and, and early on in my career, we used to do stuff like that, you know, half DB at 22 K and stuff like that. It's, it's, it's not that we can't hear this. It's a musical technique because it, it allows for, um, some, some air, you know, some shine, but that doesn't just mean that when you're, when you're doing something like that and introducing EQ globally, you're not just affecting 22, you're affecting it, the entire frequency spectrum. You're affecting the bottom by doing that too. It's not, it's, it, everything has, is interrelated with everything else. And, and I think you would hear it, you know, um, if you were in this room and I, and I boosted 22 and we AB between the two, you'd pick it. Well, that was um, the frightening thing. Even on watching this video, I was like, I can hear the difference, but I don't know why, because I can't hear 22,000 Hertz. You know, my ears are yeah, rolled off at that well, point. Everything is being is being lifted towards that. You know, if yeah. I if I boosted twenty hertz, everything would be kind of shifting towards that. So that's you know, I, I love to do that type of thing in, in the frequency spectrum. I think of the frequency spectrum that way. So, you know, as I'm you know, if I'm working on an arrangement, sometimes I like to boost 120 because it lifts the bottom upwards to create some support. And then I can use that bottom as my support to then lift higher up around 6K. And now I've got this thing where it kind of, it feels supported and more open. So it blooms in all directions, but I'm, I'm EQing that shape into compression, which also has a shape. And I'm working all these shapes in, in juxtaposition against each other to create this thing that feels like in the end that I didn't do anything at all, but it feels like this big bloomed flower, if you will. Yeah. And that's, that's really a, a profound revelation in some sense, because when we're, you know, younger engineers, less experienced people, uh, in, in my experience, tend to think of EQ in a very, what would you call it, a very stripy surgical way. Uh, all hats are at the top, just kicks are at the bottom, in the middle somewhere you've got vocals and you've got, you know, some stuff, you've got electric piano at 500 or whatever. So we think that instruments just sit in narrow bands, but like what you're describing, they're all across the whole thing. Yes. And this is the type of perspective that I had going in as a young engineer, that it's almost like the, the idea of playing checkers versus chess, you know, as you get more experienced, you kind of start thinking, well, if I do this, that, and the other, it allows me to then do this, that, and the other versus let me not do too much. Let me just do this and that. And the analogy I like to use is in mastering, a lot of times people think of the first thing we do is listen to a mix and think about, okay, what's, what's wrong with this? And what it's can almost I change? Like very, or, or just like, hey, what can I correct? Because what's, you know, needs correcting. And, and uh, you know, I just, I never think about it that way anymore. And I haven't for so long. It's, it's, it's much different. It's, it's immediately hearing to what, what is in front of you and projecting in your mind's eye where it could be and then plotting that that, that journey from point A to point B and rather quickly, actually, um, I find I do my best work. If I throw it up there, maybe 90% up on the board very quickly. And then the last 10% takes the, the actually most of the time. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. And that's, well, that's the traditional, uh, curve of any project, isn't it? It's like a load of progress gets made right here. And then, you know, it, if you think of that moment, maybe as the week that the band could afford to record in the studio, you know, that's when most of the progress got made, let's say. But yes. um, let's talk about uh, Happy for a moment, because we touched on that at the beginning. Sure. And, um, you know, now we've established a lot of what your practice is and, and, and how you approach it. Um, we can dive back in because you mentioned that Happy is a clearly... It's a dynamic song that bops, you know, the snare sticks right out. Mm. And if that was, um, obviously I would never get that brief, but if that was me, I'd be like, all right, I'm going to pull my Waves L2, smash that snare back down to where everything else is. You right. know, yeah, take us through the process. What, how do you approach a, a hit like that? 
Well, you know, so much is so much is communicated with no communication at all for, for me personally in terms of what to do when I receive a mix. I really, for have, you know, for doing this as long as I have and just doing it every day as consistently as I have, so much information is passed just by listening to what's presented to me because I've, I've heard every type of way something can be presented, you know, really, really dense, hard hitting stuff that's mixed by certain people uh, and, and stuff that's left more open and dynamic. And the communication, it's like, oh, oh, I know why you went down that road. That makes sense to me. I can hear that musically. I understand intuitively what your musical decisions are. Therefore, I'm going to process it this way. And and it's not like I'm, you know, this comes through experience too, because I've I've had, I've done this so many times, I kind of know what somebody's going to say based off what I send them. You know, mm-hmm. they're going to either say this, that, and the other. And over time, you kind of realize, okay, well, maybe when I receive mixes this way, I should treat them this way. There's a whole bunch of that. But when I received that mix that Leslie did, he didn't even have to get me on the phone. I already caught his wave. I kind of got where he was going. And, and then it's no surprise to me. I kind of expected him to have the reaction of, oh, this sounds great. Thank you for not stepping on my mix, you know? Because uh, probably maybe somebody with less experience would try to impress somebody and try to get a whole bunch of hype where it wasn't mixed for that. It was mixed for a particular feel and you have to catch that wave and ride it, right? Yeah. Um, I find that if, you know, and maybe, you know, I've you know, early on, you're worried a bunch, you know, when you're trying to impress your clients, oh, I better do this because I don't want to lose the opportunity or this and all of that. All of that angst takes you away from doing your best work. It takes you away from the music right from the get go. You're just launching from the wrong place. You got to, as you know, as, as you, as you get more comfortable and confident in this process, let all of that slide to the background and you let the music do all the speaking. In fact, the less thinking you do, the better I find. And you just operate off pure instinct I, and I've proven this to myself time and time again, you know, I'll, I'll do a record where I will second guess my decisions, come back the next, not send it out because not ready to be sent out yet. Still have another day or two. Come back the next day, no pressure. Just do it. Oh, that's, that's the one, always the one. It's always going to beat it. Cause I, cause it's coming from a musical place, not a analytical concerned second guessing type of place. Yeah, there's a really nerdy metaphor I've been using to describe that a lot recently, which is Luke turning off his targeting computer in Star Wars A New Hope. It's like, stop trying to measure, predict, and rationalize. Just goes in the ears, feel you know your response, act upon that feeling, move on. It's the best tool we have. It's the best tool we have. And that, that can be strengthened like any other thing. You know, your, your, your technical tools can be strengthened, but also your intuitive confidence can be strengthened. And I find that that is the, you know, when it's like the same thing as going on stage, you know, you, you watch somebody going on stage, like you watch Steven Tyler go on stage, you know, that guy can't miss. He's not going to miss because he's in the zone. He's, he's in the, he's in the groove and he's in the flow of it. He's in his flow state. And, you know, you find somebody else that maybe is on American Idol and maybe at home in front of their family, they're in their flow state, but they go up on stage and they're nervous as all hell. And, they're not, and they don't deliver. And that can happen to anybody, you know? So in any, in any field, I think, any creative field. It's interesting that you talked about um, what we could call developing your inner client, knowing what someone is expecting just by reading the mix they've sent over. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that I'm not so sure about is, are you only serving the mix engineer or do you also have label pressure? The labels, funny enough, are very, very rarely weigh in on these types of things. Um, they, they trust the producers, the mixers, and frankly, they trust us, uh, to, to deliver something right. And, and, um, there's a lot of, you know, we have to maintain that trust. 
Um, and that's part of our responsibility to everybody involved. But I think maybe what you're asking is if there's more than one chef in the kitchen, how do you appease contradicting arguments? Right. And, um, that, that is not always uh, the easiest thing, especially if more than one person trying to pull something in, in more than one direction. We as mastering engineers need to always give and put out something that is um, responsible and, and good for the music. You know, we don't ever want to compromise the music negatively because somebody thinks that they want something to sound like something else. We have to stand up against that. So we, we do fight that fight. And, pe- and that is how we develop that type of trust. Um, because we, we have integrity behind what we do. And, and very rarely some, if we, we are in a situation where somebody says, Hey, I want something. And we know that we're not putting something out. That's right. We'll, we'll have to say, well, we might not be the best people to, to work on this. It's very, very rare that that happens. Um, yeah, yeah. it's rare. And when obviously Lewison, um, is well established now, I imagine at the, at the beginning of a business career, particularly if you're a new studio that doesn't have any like legacy, uh, clients, you know, if you're, if you started a studio now, you would have legacy clients. Right. And it's like, if you're just in the game, you are going to want to impress everyone and never argue. And you're going to want to take every piece of business. And if they say, just make it louder, you're going to be like, yep, sure thing. I'm going to slam that limiter. So, you know, does that take a long time to develop that confidence to, you know, have to, to know that you are the expert and that's what you've been paid for. Well, I was inspired by Gavin because Gavin just took this this stance that that maybe he got the confidence from Doug. Doug, so it all it's all we all banded together. I mean, when when the loudness wars, level wars were were happening, Doug didn't buy into that ever. He didn't. He he was always doing what he did. He would always do the best choices for the music. That's that was the integrity that he had. And maybe maybe certain clients that were trying to compete with somebody else would go elsewhere elsewhere but the people that that trusted in the integrity behind the music would continue to hire him and he developed a reputation for that and Gavin followed suit Gavin went for music first and I was certainly inspired by that and I went for music first um that being said we have gotten very good at living in all worlds you know um we can we can hit stuff really really hard if that's the musicality that we need to go for for that that particular production and like I said, we wouldn't have it any other way because, I mean, I could talk, I could talk for an hour just on level, but, but we are, we are at service at the same time. You know, we, we have to be at service. These are not our albums. They're not our projects. There are, we are at service to the artists, but we play in as part of that, we're playing into guiding that process. Also, we have to have that trust. And that means kind of taking all these things into account and making the best decisions. Let's uh, take a few minutes just to talk about level there because one question I would have would be, do you, does everything have to hit zero dB anymore or have we moved on? Well, zero dB is this invisible ceiling that's now in a relative place because of the way the streaming platforms are, are normalizing everything down. So, so, you know, when we're working up against digital zero, digital zero is the same for everybody. It doesn't matter if you're working with us or you're working in your bedroom, in Pro Tools or GarageBand or anything in between. Digital zero is digital zero. So we're all working up against the same digital confines. And some people say, oh, well, that's too bad because now we have to deal with this thing that will distort. And I say, fantastic. It's something to work up against. And that's the way I've always processed audio. People think that, you know, at least for me, mastering is I'm working up against that digital ceiling as something to work up against musically, because that is something to kind of push and use dynamic processes as a musical thing to work up against Um, and it has everything to do with density. So loudness is equal to density. It's the same thing. 
The more dense something is, the more loud it is. Even if it gets lowered, it's it has that loud potential because you can just turn it up on your on your car stereo a little louder, and it's going to come up louder. So if somebody for for mastering, and they say, "What level should I leave it at?" I say the actual level is less. Is actually it doesn't matter at all. What matters is your density. You know, some because I could just turn it down digitally three dB, and now I've got three dB of headroom. That's not three dB headroom. It's it's three dB of of nothing. Right. What it is, your, your headroom is your peak to average ratio. How how dense is your average level versus your peak level? And that's all loudness is. So you could say, look at your peak is imagine your peak is always zero. That's just the, the, the ceiling. Well, it, it doesn't have to be. Generally speaking, it is um, if you're, you know, on most things I'm, I'm limiting. Uh, if I am limiting, I'm limiting directly below zero, you, you know, minus a tenth or so. And then all my musicality is is based off of where that is. Uh, I I ship a master out that way. If it gets then lowered on the platforms, the musicality is baked in that way. That's okay. So trying to be as loud as anybody else is is actually oftentimes the last thing you want to do. You're going to end up with something that's very loud and small because it's being turned down more on the platforms. And if the platforms don't turn it down, somebody listening back will turn it down on the volume knob. Last thing you want is to have your really aggressive, exciting recording being turned down, which will happen because human beings have the ability to turn things down. What you don't want is that, you know? So you want to, if you're going for maximum size, maximum impact, you want to deal with what you're presented and take that to the finish line in its best place. And that has everything to do with how it's presented, everything to do with how the mix is mixed. However, you know, how loud the vocal is relative to everything else will completely uh, have, have so much bearing on how much level can be realized or how much size can be realized is what I should say. You know, if the vocal's a little loud, the, the, the track underneath the vocal is going to sound a little small. If the vocal's a little quiet, you're going to have a much bigger sounding track. So all of these, you know, some, something so, so uh, simple as that is going to have way more of influence over where we end up at the end. Wow. That's, you know, it, it, we were mixing a TV project recently, like a t- sort of 23 minute documentary and uh, relativity comes into it a lot, you know, so we have voiceover is usually the loudest thing, right? When you're mixing for TV and then we enter a bit of voiceover and then a long transition period where it's mostly music and the music sits somewhere like here, you know, compared to the voiceover. And once you've, if you, if you punch into the session at the point where you've got music, then the next voiceover comes in, you go, whoa, that seems really, really loud. And you turn it down. Is that kind of an, an analog to what we're, we're talking about here? It's like relativity is the issue. Relativity is everything in, in our world, everything. So absolutely, you know, yeah. and you're dealing with, you know, when you're, when you're a mastering engineer, listening to things, you're listening to everything's interrelating with everything else, sort of almost as a mixer, but not as a mixer, because you're listening to the global and you're understanding how you're introducing processing for, for, uh, in, you know, introducing into the global. So yeah, everything is relative to everything else. What's your opinion of, um, Mas- people who master their own mixes, you know, is that, is that advisable or inadvisable or is that just not a specific enough question? It could be the not enough specific enough question. And, and it really depends on how these people are mastering their own mixes. And the, uh, one of the first questions I have when somebody brings in something is, uh, you know, this, this happens quite a bit where I'll have two files, one with the full processing on the bus as they, as maybe the artist heard and without or with less, maybe without the limiter. 
And my first question, 100% of the time is, what is your mix? Is it, is it option A or is it option B? Because it, it could be either one. Um, maybe yeah, it's, it's not as simple as the mix is just the mix with no bus processing. It's not that simple. It's certainly not that simple. And this is where this is one of the biggest topics of great confusion that uh, a lot of my colleagues, we, we after working or we'll, we'll not so much in COVID times, they're, they're more Zoom hangs. But we'll, <laughs> we'll talk we'll talk about this type of thing because um, there, there is great uh, a great amount of confusion about this topic. And, and here's how it came by. Um, mixers would mix without having to think about level for, for a long time because they would depend on their mastering engineers to take it there. And oftentimes as they were mixing, the only time the artist would even hear the mix is when they were there at the studio. Sometimes they'd get a CD to listen to, you know, but, but really the way they were really hearing it for the first time was at the very end, once it was already mastered to a large degree, that's when they were really making the final judgments. And that's completely changed over a long time. And, and people are, our mixing engineers are in a position where they have to deliver something in order to keep the gig that is already sounding fairly done. So that, that introduces a, uh, a wrench in their, in their world. And this 10 years ago, they were mixing without trying to achieve any type of level necessarily. They were just trying to get to a, to a appropriate level, their level, their preferred level as mixing engineers, but to get their artist approval, they'd slam a limiter. They put a limiter on post their mixing process and the artist would only hear that. And then they might have notes on that, or there's had some back and forth, but they never really heard the mix that was presented for mastering. So what a mastering engineer would receive is two sets of files, or, or if it's a single, you know, two files for the single. One as the mix was, just the way the mix heard it, the, just the way the mixer prepared it and did it. And then another file that is not quite their mix, but it's what the artist has been living with. So when it comes to mastering, you wouldn't want to listen, you wouldn't want to use that as your source, you'd want to use this as your source, because that's the real true mix that has, that, that, that has all the musicality just the way the mixer left it. And that is that source is going to yield the best thing for the end results. Now, fast forward, things get a little bit more tricky. And we're now in a world where mixers are mixing into the processing a little bit more, or maybe 80% of the way through, they put on this limiter. Maybe it's not just a limiter. Maybe it's compression, EQ, limiting, combination of various processes all working, sometimes multiband compression. Anyway, they're mixing into this, this processing that is on the bus. And all of their musical decisions, all of their decisions are based off what is coming out of the speakers. So all of their balances are completely influenced by this thing. But time for mastering, let's take it off. Well, what is this at this point? It's subject to whatever you had on the bus. So the question is, why would you take that off? This is not your mix at all. This is your mix. Well, maybe let's take off just the limiter. Well, maybe depends on what that limiter is doing. Is it, is it doing a lot? Is it really, really doing a lot of work or is it doing something very little? So these are the things that we have to determine and everybody does it differently. So a lot of the times I'll use this one as the source because that in fact is their mix. This is useless at this point. And this is the, this is the, uh, the start of this great confusion because it has everything to do with how that mixer prepared their mix. And there is no one way to do it. There's a, there's a, there's a million ways to do it. Yeah, that's interesting, actually, because uh, I often, you know, will do a mix and then do an arbitrary bus process after the mix and not mixing into it, but do a mm -hmm. kind of, well, I'll take some of the very, very low frequencies off and then maybe put an SSL compressor on and see what that does. And then an L3 and pull it down to zero. And it's, um, you know, and this is all, this is a, an admission of great foolishness on my part. So it's really, um, it's interesting to know that uh, mastering engineers 
can prefer to hear what your bus processing is because it's all influencing the mix. And I've definitely been guilty of that before of just, you know, mixing into bus processing, turning it off and then just sending that to the mastering engineer. I suppose for for the less experienced people in our audience, you might say the analogy would be shooting a film with an orange filter on it and then just taking the filter off in post and being like, cool, it looks completely different now. Absolutely. That's, that's a good analogy. It's really that. You want to nine times out of 10 use what the mixer did, even if they mix through processing, because that is in fact their mix. Without that, it's not the same. Now, removing some limiting or turning down the threshold of the limiter sometimes can introduce something. But, but, and that's why it's sometimes nice to have more than, than, than one. Um, you know, one option, but these are the types of things we go into. And here's, here's where you're in a rock, you're between a rock and a hard place is when somebody's overdone it and they've mixed into it, but it, but they know they've overdone it too. They, they're not even happy with it. They're saying, well, I just hope that you can do a better job instead of what I had on the bus. But what the, the thing that they, that they're, uh, they're missing is they're married to it at that point. Their mix uh-huh. is completely dependent on that. They can't undo that, or I have to redo it another way. And even just doing that, you're already kind of starting off from, you know, the analogy to use is Humpty Dumpty fell off the wall. I can glue it back together, but you're always going to see the cracks, you know, I might glue it together better. You know, this is the other thing. Sometimes removing that process, we have this type of scenario where somebody mixes to their, their liking, right? And then they throw something on for the artist only, but now the artist has a whole bunch of notes and this thing's gone back and forth so many times it's lost its way. Taking it off at that point is subject to all of that back and forth. So sometimes projects go down that road too, in which case you have to make some decisions because I might introduce all of this beautiful processing on my end to, to make it bloom and to ride choruses to give you that excitement. But inherently, just inherently, there's 2% of there that's that's not quite, that's got lost because somebody took something off at some point that was part of their musical balances. And so at that point, you have to uh, you have to make the best decisions you can because remixing is not an option. And you have to take all of those things into account. And even though you're, you're putting out something that is the best it can be, there is somewhere along the lines a hair of compromise. Um, and so our job at that point is to talk about it and to make some decisions based off what we have at that point, um, even if it is salvaging something, even those those tiny degrees of, of salvaging what, what happened. Uh, the alternative is that this music's not going to be released and nobody's going to hear it. So these are the things we get into. And these are the things we have to de- decide. And our best, uh, the best thing we can do is continue to educate people on on their on their uh, processes so they make the best decisions for themselves, even if that means not using us for any mastering engineer at all or preparing something and, and really taking uh, utilizing us for what we can offer in the best way. But the issue you d- uh, described at length there is also um, uh, worthwhile, it's worth noting, in the creative industries, you are it's unavoidable that at some point you're going to have to be attempting to salvage a sinking ship. And you won't be able to pull your hair out about, oh, if only it was optimal, if only this mistake hadn't happened. Um, and yeah, so I mean, how do you... I mean, you described a bit of it, but you know, I assume that's quite rare in your case. Very rare. Most of the time, these issues don't come up. What's most important is we, we know... The, the, the biggest issue is we know what happens because a lot of times the artist will just send in one file and the producers onto the next job. So we have to say, no artist, wait a second, what happened? Let me talk to your mixing engineer. Let's just make sure we get everything the way we should. And so educating people when they come to us on, you know, and then maybe kind of doing some further digging in terms of where, where this, these files ended up in their hands and just making sure we have the right thing to work from is so much now actually a big part of our job more than ever. 
Um, but, but people that are good generally, uh, end up sticking around, you know, producers that are good at what they do, you know, work creates more work. They're, they're good. They're doing good things for the right reasons. They end up sticking around we get those mixes from them and there's not problems from them. Even if they do have, you know, a significant amount of bus processing in it on their mixes. Great. That's their musicality. That's what they presented. No reason to not use that as a source as long as you can, um, as long as you're not conscious of the confines of that processing. In other words, as long as you're not, you're not, you're not hearing those transients stop against the ceiling. You know, you're not hearing the hardness of those transients. You're not hearing the negative aspects of those pro that processing. You're in good shape because so much of what we can do is to remove that veil in a way. Um, I listen for, am I conscious of that ceiling? Because I never ever want to put out anything ever that I'm conscious of a ceiling on. And I have ways of EQing to make that ceiling less apparent, even if it's already there. I can kind of uncompromise something in mastering a lot of the times if I have to do that. Do you, yeah. Are you uh, familiar with Yoad Nevo? I don't know that I am actually. Yeah, he's a mix engineer. He does a lot of wave stuff um, on YouTube. But uh, oh, no, yes, I am actually. Yes, yes. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, we did uh, a podcast with him recently, which was daunting at first because you know he's very, you know, you don't get a lot of feedback initially. But uh, he's wisdom is deep. He knows a lot of of stuff, and he said two things that I'd uh, love to get your take on. One was. Um, what you were sort of maybe describing there. He said, you know, e either you're controlling the situation or the situation is controlling you. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's, that pertains to this, you know, salvaging things that aren't maybe working. Yeah, we have to make the best decisions for not, not you know, just everybody involved, the artists, the, the integrity behind the music. What it comes down to is we have to make the best decisions for the music. That's the simplest way. And whatever that means. Um, and usually there's, there's, it's very clear what that decision needs to be. So we just, we do that. Yeah. And then the, the other one was um, that this this won't be true in your case because you've not been alive long enough. But he said um, mastering is often taking twenty five years of experience and condensing it into half dB moves. Oh yeah, I'd say way, way less than that. Fractions of a tenth. Fractions yeah. of a tenth is way more apparent in our world, especially because especially for dealing with very dense arrangements. You know, when when you're dealing with a dense compressed material, those fractions of a tenth of a dB are very audible. When you're dealing with something a little bit more open and loose, they're a little less audible. So, yes, absolutely. Uh, this is a game of inches, and all, and and beyond even that, it's it's feel. It's 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 the integrity of the quality of the audio. This is where we get deep and down the rabbit hole. Is how does it just feel? You know, is it, does it feel pure? Does it feel effortless, or does it feel processed? And is that process working for you musically or working against against you? These are the things to to be become sensitive to and attuned to, so you can guide yourself through all of these different ways you can you can go down these paths yeah like i'm sure you remember about 10 years ago um we had it was about 10 years ago now which is frightening we had the period where skrillex uh, became really popular and brought into being that genre of music writ large and a, mm. a, a huge feature of it was going from zero db to minus infinite in the space of like half a second right. and you know it could sound like like an error if you were in a different genre but like you're saying that genre demanded that you slam it that way because that was yes. what was appealing absolutely that's part of it it's part of it and there's good there's good slammed in that in that world and there's bad slammed in that world you know um and there's everything in between you know his productions have always sounded very very impressive to me you know so it's no it's no question that he would lead the charge in a lot of ways especially at that time you know and, and i remember all of that um 
but but sometimes you know some some it really has to do with does somebody push something beyond where it musically feels like it wants to be and you yeah. let the music guide you you got to let the music guide you so let's take a moment to talk about uh motion picture because uh you know i've seen from your resume here um, the first one that you mentioned is working on the soundtrack of Slumdog Millionaire, which I have to mention because we're in Manchester and that's made by Danny Boyle, one of our Mancunian <laughs> heroes. So, yeah. you know, talk about how different it is working on motion picture to working on a pop record. And by the way, I'm guessing, is that why you've got a huge screen in your studio? <laughs> well, that's a, so what we're doing is the soundtrack releases. That goes on Spotify, iTunes. What, uh, sometimes the, the songs occasionally once mastered goes into the film uh but generally the score music doesn't because it's because the score music is often produced not for stereo it's back then it was mixed to 5-1 now it's being mixed to atmos which i could spend another hour talking about but uh but when it comes to us it's it's being repurposed for stereo release generally speaking uh for the platforms uh, when Slumdog came out, this was pre-Spotify. Uh, so the priority was, well, it's probably, uh, you know, still platforms, but it was Apple Music and and uh, and CD, you know, that's what we were doing it for. Um, so it's, it's mixed down to stereo specifically for the soundtrack release. And then we're optimizing it for the screen back there is, is only to see Pro Tools bigger. Oh, <laughs> wow. The film. Yeah. Yeah, and also, is that like, um, you know, is, is there anything special about that screen? Is it like not reflective or something? Is it acoustically appropriate or? Uh, well, we tune the room around it being down, you know, so um, it doesn't bother me. It actually, now I'm used to the room that way. If I pull it, put it up, the room sounds not right to me. So yeah. it's like anything else. If I took the couch out of the back of the room, the room would certainly not sound right to me. Oh, yeah. yeah. But this, this couch is not acoustically treated. It's just a couch. <laughs> yeah. yeah, we went, me and uh, Eric Valentine went down a rabbit hole on that when he came on the podcast. And, sure. you know, because we, we've just got um, a, I, I won't mention, we've not signed off on it yet, but we just got, uh, you know, a very good acoustics company to quote us for the two studios in here. Because I don't know if you can see, but the walls are pretty bare. So mixing in here is a nightmare. Mm -hmm. um, but uh, yeah, then we come up with the issue of, oh, but we still like to have a huge TV screen there. So it sounds like you're saying, you know, if you've got the screens and it's an integral part of your process, make sure they're in when you're treating the room. Yeah, there's there's some arguments about that. You know, people you know can shoot rooms and try to get them as flat as possible. The, we we tune rooms by our ears. We spend a lot of time doing it. We listen. We do do sweeps also to reconfirm what we're hearing because that's very informative. We move the speakers back and in you know, a couple of inches or a foot and move them forward. We learn the room based off that. We change our listening positions. All of these things go into tuning rooms, and your ears are are personal to you. Gavin and I thankfully hear the same way. It's probably because I grew up being mentored by Gavin. So mm. I probably just got used to that temperature and it came from the mastering lab too, you know? So we like to uh, tune our environments to give us the best window and porthole to the world. And that is subject to a personal preference. You know, we walk into other mastering engineers rooms and be like, well, how do you even understand what this is? You know, and they probably have the same experience if they listen to how we, they, you know, it all sounds balanced, but it's balanced in their own way, you know? Yeah. So I don't, you know, personally like a very hi-fi tweeter. I, I I find that I prefer a more dark, growly speaker. What more, are you using uh, right there? What have you got? These are ATC 150s, and that's that's the same speaker I've used my entire career. Yeah, so you trust that? Um, I do. Yeah, and I'm yeah. just it's uh it's like it's just very familiar to me. It's just it's my porthole. Yeah. 
um, it's really, it's always um, interesting to get the this kind of perspective from the pros because we're we're a very small and very new business in the grand scheme of things. We're about five years old, and none of us, when we joined, had any like significant industry experience. So uh, we're really building from the bottom up and. Um, the other engineers and I, we can often fall into the trap of imagining there's some objectivity. I talked to Andrew Sheps about this as well, saying that there's such a thing as the perfect room. There's not. There's your room. It's all taste. Absolutely. Yep. And you talk to anybody in our fields, they'll all agree with that. Every room yeah. sounds a little different. There is no perfect room. There is no perfect brain. There's no perfect ear. It's all just you and your experience and your decisions. That's all there is. Yeah. I mean, the, the big uh, big thing we're coming up against at the moment is we've been using these Genelex for years, um, but they sound huge. They produce this really flattering sound. Um, and, uh, I'm, you know, we're, we're in the market now for something that's a bit more, I don't know, that sounds like speakers that people listen to music on, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, there's so many, I mean, there's how that speaker integrates with that room. You know, they're completely, you know, you can, you can very quickly dismiss a speaker for saying that's a bad speaker, but is it interacting with that room? You know, it's, it's completely tied to that. So I, I, I've heard, I've heard these ATC sound horrible when not properly in the right position. And you could quickly dismiss any speaker if it's not. And then, you know, but once we get them integrating with the room and, you know, dialing everything in, now they sound like the most amazing thing you've ever heard in your life. So these are the things. Let's uh, briefly, because we've just about to come up on the hour, but let's uh, talk about life outside of work and on the musical side for you. Do you still actually, you know, you started as a musician. Do you still make any music? Do you get any of that done? Just for for my own therapy. (laughs) Like I use music now to, uh, to wind myself down from the day. I'll just go on the couch and play guitar. That's my musical, I don't know. That's what I use it for. But my girlfriend and I, we write fun songs for people as gifts now. Like we'll, we'll... We'll do that type of thing. I find that so no, that's that's what I like to do. Um, but but uh, mastering is a lot of musical energy too. You know, it takes takes a lot of musical energy out of you uh, to do it every day, and you have to maintain that like anything else. You know, get enough sleep and eat right and all of that, so you have more to put out. So I find that I have enough for mastering. Yeah, <laughs> a lot of work. Oh yeah. God, yeah, yeah. We definitely found that because um, you know. Uh, you know, full disclosure, our businesses, we, we compose music for advertising in the UK, basically. And um, uh, I used to be, before I was kind of, you know, significantly involved with the business, used to have this kind of naivety that it's like, right, I'm going to work all day. And then the evening is going to be when I produce my own stuff. And you, if you're listening all day, you're done. Yes, yes. I'm listening to podcasts on the way home, put it that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who do you enjoy listening to? I listen to, I mean, a lot of different people, but probably just because he's got great guests, I listen to the Joe Rogan podcast a lot. Joe Rogan, number one. Yeah. 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 Well, that's exactly why this, well, it's not exactly why this came about, but this was a, a lockdown project initially, like March comes around, suddenly there's no work to do. So uh, got to do something, right? So this was that. So, um, yeah. so Ruben Cohen, thank you for talking to me for the last hour. And I hope the, if there's any mastering you know, pros or aficionados who end up listening to this or watching this. I apologize if my questions were not down the rabbit hole far enough. But uh, I, I mean, you've, you've done other stuff, haven't you? Like your mix with the masters where you really go in depth on the tech. Yeah, yeah. And we also have a YouTube channel too, where we go even further down. If you check us out, Lurson Mastering YouTube, or do all kinds of, you know, demonstrations and talk philosophy, both Gavin and I. So uh, certainly anybody that's more uh, on that side of things, they might they might enjoy that. Great stuff. Oh, and uh, one final thing I'll say, how, how is uh, business looking, you know, uh, pandemic wise? Are we, uh, has it affected it at all? Or? 
you know, when, when it first hit, I think the whole world was thinking, where is this going to turn? And everybody felt it because the whole world came to a grinding halt. But thankfully, uh, it seems like we're back to normal again. Um, so, you know, we're blessed to feel that way. But yeah, I think we're, we're back to our normal rhythms at this point. Great stuff. Well, long may it continue. 